0: We've made it to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, when you get there, once you scan over the passage, uh, you'll see that this is a very pointed discussion about marital union. Uh, It's one of those passages that... uh, Preachers don't necessarily look forward to preaching, if I'm honest with you. Um, this is a very pointed discussion about a uh, delicate subject. And uh, I was speaking to one of our elders, Jim Tuck, this morning before the service, and he said, Hey, isn't that one of the reasons why we preach through books of the Bible consecutively, verse by verse, chapter by chapter? And he's exactly right. It's one of the reasons we do that, because it It means that we listen to the whole counsel of God and all that he has to say to uh, his church. And in God's wise providence, we trust that this is his good word for us uh, today. Now, as we're approaching this subject of sex and sexuality, uh, I I also want to say I think it's good and necessary that we do so, because uh, the, the reality is every single day our kids Our neighbors and all of us are being bombarded by a message from our culture about sex and sexuality. We are being fed a lie on a daily basis. And so it is very important for us, isn't it, to hear from God about this important issue of sex and sexuality. Now, after having spent part of chapter 5 and chapter 6 dealing with sexual immorality in different ways, sex distorted and perverted by sin, Paul now turns in the beginning of this chapter to to give us a more positive picture. Here he will discuss sex and sexuality in the beauty and the goodness of God's design. Now also recall from last time that some of the Corinthians, Paul had to address this issue of Uh, Christians whose view of sex was so liberal and unconstrained, they they were actually going to visit temple prostitutes there in the temple of Aphrodite within the city of Corinth. We, We remember their slogan, all things are lawful for me, right? Anything goes, whatever you desire, satisfy those desires. But then there was another group On the opposite extreme, and you can see their slogan right there in verse 1 of chapter 7, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That pretty much sums up their way of thinking with regard to sexuality. Sex is a bad thing. It's to be avoided. And so you can see these two extremes within the church of Corinth. On the one hand, there was unrestrained sexual promiscuity, and on the other hand, there was misguided self denial sort of prudish hostility towards sex altogether they saw it as something that was dirty and unworthy of the Christian life and so it was always to be avoided but if we combine the teaching of chapters 6 and 7 we have I think a Christian vision of human sexuality that actually defies both of those extremes and instead holds out a picture of sexual union within the bonds of marriage that is at once affirming, even celebratory, of sex and sexuality, while at the same time locating it within the God-given bounds. And that is, I think we'd all agree, a message that, that, that couldn't be more relevant and urgent for us to hear in our day. Uh, so let's read the text here in just a moment, but before we do, let's pray and, and seek the Lord's help as we seek to understand this passage. Let's pray. Our Father, Oh, we confess how we desperately do need to hear a word from you in, in regard to these issues, and so we pray by the Holy Spirit that you would be our teacher, instructing us and forming our minds, conforming our minds to your will and desire for your people in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would uh, draw us closer to the Lord Jesus today as we hear his word proclaimed over us. And we pray that we would be built up and established in the faith. For your glory and honor we ask it. Amen. God's word beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I think in, a, in, an, a, in an age of widespread biblical illiteracy, that a lot of people would not expect the Bible to speak to an issue like this. Many folks who haven't honestly read through the scriptures are likely not anticipating that the Bible has very much to say about sex and sexuality. They might think that it has contained some nice stories, some practical advice about some things here and there, but when it comes to an issue like this, we've got to go somewhere else for our counsel. Well, if, if that's how you think, the Bible is going to defy your expectations. Because here Paul is going to speak to us candidly about sex. But maybe then when you hear that, you're bracing yourself for a talk along the lines of, you know, five reasons why sex is bad and shouldn't ever be spoken about in public places by Paul the prude. Um, but that's not what we're going to find here. Maybe, maybe that's what you expect But Paul's going to defy your expectations once again. Instead, what we find here is a positive, deeply affirming vision of sexual union within the bonds of marriage. And Paul is going to talk to us about three ways of thinking about sex and sexuality that I think we badly need to hear. So, first of all, he's going to speak about sex as defense. Secondly, sex as debt. And thirdly, sex as devotion. So those are the three things we're going to think about this morning. Defense, debt, and devotion. Beginning first of all with sex as defense. Now remember the context in which the Corinthians lived. They were living in a deeply hedonistic society, not all that different from our own. And some of them, not unlike some of us, found it very hard to resist the gravitational pull of the permissive anything goes sexual ethic of the culture it was uh, you remember the motto basically if you've got sexual appetites satisfy them but there were others who took the opposite approach as i said a moment ago and they were saying it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman sex is bad period right We're, we're christians And this is the path to godliness, to avoid anything bodily, any bodily desire to engage in self-denial. That was their point of view. Now, just to be clear, um, because Paul does have more to say in this passage that we need to take into consideration. If you look ahead to verses 6 and 7, Paul is going to argue that celibate singleness is indeed a gift that God gives to some people. Some people, but not all people. And so in verses 2 and 5, bracketing our text today, Paul is clear that attempting celibacy without the gift and call of God is to open yourself up to all kinds of temptation. Verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality. The word behind that in Greek is, basically means sexual conduct outside of the confines of marriage between one man and one woman because of the temptation to sexual immorality each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband and then in verse 5 married couples Paul says are not to neglect sexual intimacy except for an agreed upon season then only by mutual agreement he says and he says for a, for a period of time it's not to be permanent So they're to come back together so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, if sexual intimacy within marriage then is possible, then setting it aside, foregoing it without the gift and calling of God, Paul is saying, is actually to expose oneself to all kinds of temptation and sin. And so Paul is saying that a major defense given by God against sexual sin is sex, as God has ordained it to be. Now, we need to be really careful in in how we apply this passage because this is one of those passages that often gets misread and misapplied. Paul is not saying that marriage is a quick fix or a silver silver bullet solution for somebody who is hooked on some kind of sexual sin. He is not suggesting that marriage is the solution for sinful sexual habits and addictions. But some apply Paul's teaching that very way. So you have people telling, for example, young men who are, addicted to pornography, who, who lack self-control, and they're told, look, just get married and all of this will go away. It's all going to get better. But then tragically, once they're married, they quickly find their disordered desires remain, that things haven't really changed, and, and that's because, my friends, marriage doesn't change your heart. It doesn't change your thinking about what sex is for. If you think sex is for your own gratification, your own selfish self-pleasure and satisfaction. If you think people are commodities to be used for your pleasure, getting married isn't going to change that. You need a heart change. You need a change in your thinking about what sex is for, what other people are for, what your own body is for, what sexual intimacy is all about. But do notice that that there is a strong affirmation here of the place of marriage in in a culture with these two extremes, right? Self-indulgence on the one hand and misguided self-denial on the other. Paul declares God's good design. Each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. See, the lifelong union of one man and one woman in marriage is the God-ordained context for sexual intimacy and mutual delight. And that is so for theological reasons. Within that context, God has ordained that sexual intimacy should strengthen and protect each partner from the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. In a world where, where sex is distorted into something that is... Selfish and shameful, marriage is the God-given context for selfless and self-giving intimacy. And so the Corinthians were, they were getting it all wrong. Sinful self-indulgence and misguided self-denial is not God's way. Both of those options are actually strategies that Satan loves to take advantage of and use to cause people to stumble. And so Paul is saying that healthy sexual intimacy within marriage is a vital defense ordained by God against temptation. That's the first thing we need to see, sex as defense. And Paul is not saying anything new here. Um, He is simply, in his own words, repeating what the Old Testament had been saying throughout the wisdom literature. You think of all of the exhortations in the book of Proverbs to the young man to delight himself in the wife of of his youth, to not listen to the adulteress. You think of the the same uh, injunctions being given in Ecclesiastes. So Paul is simply repeating what the Old Testament had already been teaching to the people of God. But let me just mention one other caution here, and it's that Paul is not giving anyone license to put the burden on their spouse of satisfying disordered sexual desires. Be clear about this, this is is not an excuse or warrant to say to your spouse, look, if, if you would just do X, I wouldn't be tempted or if we would do this more often, or if you would just do what I want, then I wouldn't have to deal with these sorts of temptations. trying to put this as delicately as possible, but this is a reality that the Word of God speaks to and that we need to address today. If your spouse ever says anything like that or pressures you to do things that you are uncomfortable with and appeals to passages in the Word of God, passages like 1 Corinthians 7, to try to justify their demands, please know and understand that that is a profound distortion of what the Word of God actually says. And if that is your experience, as as hard as I'm sure it would be, talk to someone about it. That isn't something you should have to deal with on your own. And so with those important qualifications, though positively, Paul is saying that healthy sexual intimacy within Christian marriage is a vital defense ordained by God. A healthy sex life within a loving Christian marriage is part of God's spiritual armor, if you like, in the war against the enemies of our, the enemy of our soul. Sex is defense. And then secondly... The second thing I want us to think about here is sex as debt. Look at verses 3 and 4. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. Now, it's crucial that we recognize the balance here in what Paul is saying, isn't it? It's, it's, it's vital that we understand and, and note both sides of what Paul is teaching here. Because if we, if we fail to do that, I think we will badly distort what he's actually saying. What Paul is, in fact, saying is revolutionary. It's, it was certainly revolutionary, particularly in the context in which the Apostle Paul wrote this letter so notice, notice first in verse 3 that Paul begins by addressing husbands about the conjugal rights of the wife. Now commentators are virtually unanimously agreed that Paul is alluding here or relying upon Exodus chapter 21 verses 10 and 11. Where you have a case of a, hus- a husband neglecting his wife failing to provide uh, food, clothing, conjugal rights, or love, any of those three. And the text says that if the husband fails to do that, the wife is not under bondage. She is free. She's free from that relationship and presumably free to remarry. So that's in the background here. But notice notice that this is where Paul begins. And with the, the husband recognizing the rights of the wife, now I say that's revolutionary because that flies right in the face of, of some Jewish tradition and certainly Greco-Roman society in those days which privileged the husband's rights over the wife every single time. Now, if you need evidence of that, all you need to do is go back and read some of the household codes coming right out of this society which privileged the rights of the paterfamilias, right, the the husband, father, master, securing his rights and treating the wife and children and servants virtually as commodities that existed for the benefit of the, the, the patriarch of the home. And so you see how what Paul is saying is incredibly revolutionary here, Paul starts by affirming the wife's rights, and he commands husbands to respect and honor those rights. So that order, again, it's important because it's making it clear that within marriage, husbands and wives both have rights and responsibilities. It isn't a one-way relationship with the wife existing for her husband. And only after making that clear does Paul then say... That the same applies for the wife regarding her husband. Each is to understand that the other has rights in this whole area. And so notice then what what Paul is making clear. He he places the obligation upon us to think of the rights of the other rather than to stand, stand upon our own perceived rights and make demands upon the other. In a book that I've, uh, I've found helpful in premarital counseling that I've done in the past, um, the author deals with common areas of tension that can develop in the marriage relationship. And so there's a, there's a chapter on expectations. There's a chapter on in-laws. There's a chapter on finances. Uh, and there's a chapter on sex. Uh, because this can easily become a point of tension and, and friction within a marriage. And Paul, I think, is helping us understand why sex can easily become one of those points of tension. When one spouse demands his or her rights at the expense of the others, what happens? Well, then pain and grief and distance and alienation are introduced into the relationship. And that is because it's a distortion of God's good, wise design for sexual intimacy, where each is for the other. And so Paul gives absolutely no space, no no quarter for self-centeredness in this area of sexual intimacy. Instead, he says, our attitude and our actions should be one of service. We are to serve our spouse, to Give to them for, for their sake rather than to demand for our own. And so he says in verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, if Paul stopped there, well, we could see how this verse could be used to promote all kinds of misogyny and abuse. But Paul immediately says, doesn't he, that likewise the husband does not have authority Over his own body, but the wife does. Now, interestingly, this is the only place in the New Testament that uses this language of authority, exousia, that uses this language of authority to describe the husband wife relationship. Say that again it's the only place in the New Testament that speaks in these terms about this authority in the husband and wife relationship. And do notice that it's speaking about a mutual authority, a shared authority. Now, if that piques your interest, let's, I'll just make a plug here shamelessly for Sunday school because that's an issue that we're going to delve more deeply into. So come on out and we'll, we'll seek to learn together. But let's, let's, let's pick this up at the very least. As Paul is speaking about mutual authority here, that means any conception of a husband having a commanding authority over his wife is in fact unbiblical and a profound distortion of what the Bible actually teaches. Now, what Paul is saying here, once again, it is revolutionary in the Greco-Roman context where women were were virtually considered second-class citizens. The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, each has a claim upon the other so that love in the bonds of marriage brings each person to a place of service, seeking what is best for the other. Paul even says in verse 5, don't deprive one another. The language, it could actually be translated, do not defraud one another. Paul is speaking in terms of of marital intimacy, of sexual union, in terms of a a debt that is owed. As something that is owed to another. a, A sacred obligation designed by God for the good of both partners within marriage. But circling back just for a moment to some of the qualifiers I made a few moments ago. Now do you, do you see, I hope even more clearly, how anyone trying to use a passage like 1 Corinthians 7 for selfish, self-serving reasons is in fact profoundly distorting and abusing what Paul is actually saying. Because if you make demands on your spouse, if you If you use sex to gratify yourself without any consideration of your spouse, you are in fact trampling all over God's good design. Because sex is not for the fulfillment of selfish, self-centered desire. It is for service and maintaining and strengthening uh, the sacred bond between a husband and wife. And within that context, it is to be celebrated and enjoyed. So with that being said, Paul is teaching that in a healthy marriage, sex is not only a defense, sex is a Christian duty. It is a debt we owe to the other. And, you know, if you if you think about that, there is something profoundly Christ-like, isn't there, in this pattern of mutual service and self-giving. Christ, you remember, he, what did he do? He came to earth to give himself for his bride, giving himself up for her. That is how he loves his bride, the church. He, he didn't insist upon his own rights, but voluntarily gave himself For the good of his bride. And that really was the pattern of his entire earthly ministry culminating in giving himself up unto death upon the cross of Calvary. He took on, as as Paul puts it in Philippians 2, the form of a slave. And you see, there's a a gospel pattern then in in marriage, even within sexual union, of self-giving for the good of of the other not demanding not not uh, not standing on what we perceive to be our rights and our due you see rightly ordered sex is a beautiful thing part of God's design that in some ways pictures something of the gospel itself and so sex is defense sex is debt And then thirdly, and finally, sex as devotion. Take a look again at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Well friends, let's let's just face it, we, we live in a we live in a messed up world where where things are not the way that they are supposed to be. And so many of us have entered into marriage or will enter into marriage with all kinds of baggage, insecurities, fears, hurts, wounds, things that we bring with us into the relationship. And sometimes our marriages become disordered by by sin. Uh, that we ourselves are, are committing, that goes against God's design. Sometimes our marriage relationships, be, relationships become disordered because of sin that has been committed against us, perhaps even prior to our marriages. And given the complexities of all of that, there, there are various valid circumstances in which sexual intimacy in marriage may not be appropriate for a season. So anyone, again, who takes Paul's teaching here in these verses is warrant to demand what should be given as an act of loving service distort scripture in dangerous and harmful ways. There's no place here for the kind of abusive demands that sometimes, sadly, find their way into Christian marriages. But then neither is there any place for manipulative withholding of sex for selfish or spiteful ends that also sometimes sadly finds its way into Christian marriages. Do not deprive one another. That's, that's the normal guideline for a healthy, loving marriage. In other words, give each other what is owed. Give yourself, Paul is saying. But Paul does not, he does make an exception here. You see it in the text, and I think it's, I think it's fascinating and really challenging, as I, as I hope to show in just a moment. He says that a couple may, uh, a couple capable of sexual intimacy may mutually decide to break off that intimacy for a season in order to focus in a sustained way. Upon prayer. Uh, The word translated in our ESV. As a limited time. Has the idea of. A season of time. With special significance. With a limit to it. Okay. There are are some. Unusual circumstances. uh, Of special seriousness. That call husband and wife. To a sustained season. Of focused prayerfulness. Paul's acknowledging that now. I think I think what Paul is saying here is analogous to fasting, right when we fast from food what are what are we acknowledging and saying to the Lord? we're saying, lord, I need you more than I need my daily bread, and we use that time of fasting to seek the Lord and to call out to him, and in the same way, Paul is suggesting that sexual intimacy so Necessary and normative for, for, for healthy marriage can be set aside for an agreed-upon time so that that couple may pray together as a way to say, Lord, even more than we need each other, we need you. So whatever you make of that, it's clear, I think, that, and this is why it's, I think it's a challenge, Paul, Paul expects Christian couples to be praying together. He expects them to understand that there is a higher claim upon their marriage so that even there may be times that intrude upon their regular routine and cause them to reorder their priorities even over perhaps their perceived physical needs. You see, the Lord Jesus, this is what Paul is saying in essence, I think, the Lord Jesus has prior claim on your life. The Lord Jesus has prior claim on your marriage. Your marriage is for him. And I think we also ought to say that to those thinking about marriage or one day looking forward to marriage. Here is the governing principle, the guiding principle in all of the decisions that need to be made about who to marry and and all of the details that follow it's simply this: that your marriage is for God. Now Paul is saying there are, there are situations where, where, where sexual intimacy may may be, may be set aside, but he also says that separation is never to be permanent, because Satan will be looking for any and every opportunity to undermine and disrupt Christian marriages. So he's saying, don't, you know, don't pretend to be so spiritual, so pious, that you can neglect intimacy with your spouse. See, according to Paul, intimacy in marriage, instead of being some kind of distraction from godliness, is in fact a normal part of devotion that is itself pleasing to God for those who are called to marriage. It glorifies Him because it is Living according to his good design and purpose. And friends, when we, live, when we live contrary to God's design and purpose, what happens? Well, it makes us vulnerable, doesn't it? It makes us vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. And so Paul says, come together that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, I, I've, said this, uh, I've said this in other contexts, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat it today. And I think you'll see why. Again, I believe that one of the best witnesses that we can offer today in our confused, mixed up, soul sick world that is descending into ever deepening sexual chaos and confusion, one of the greatest things, ways that we can bear witness is to display humble, servant hearted, tender, gospel shaped, intimate, lifelong, enduring. Marriages where there are no controlling abusive self-centered demands there are no, there's no belittling there's no bitterness there's no manipulation but instead there is in its place because of the grace of God joyful intimacy sexual holiness which for the apostle Paul is part and parcel of sexual holiness which is pleasing in the sight of God and honoring to him And so while the world thinks that Christians are sexually repressed prudes, obsessed with the sex that they cannot have, my, how we need to retrieve, I think, the biblical vision that delights in God's wonderful design for the joyful and exclusive union between one man and one woman in marriage for life. And, and when we not only believe that, but live it by the grace of God, think, think of how countercultural that is and what a beautiful thing it will be to show how the gospel reorders our lives. And so may the Lord help us and, and give us grace at a time when I really think this, this is a battlefield in our day, isn't it? May God give us grace to shine and bear witness to the world of what the gospel does. But I, I'll, I'll add, and we'll end here, I'll say that even more importantly than that, bearing witness to the world, may, the God give us, may God give us the grace to live this way so that he is glorified and he is honored in our marriages and in our lives. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we, uh, we confess, and I'll be the first to confess that This is a topic that's uncomfortable for some of us to speak about, and to speak about in a context like this. But uh, Lord, we also confess how we need your grace to walk in obedience, to walk faithfully and wisely and obediently in this area of sex and sexuality. So would you please grace us in the Lord Jesus Christ and work by the power of the Holy Spirit so that our lives and our marriages are conformed to your will. And those of us who are are single, and those of us who are called to a life of singleness, may we too receive the grace uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to live faithfully and fruitfully for your honor and glory. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.